Well, welcome to the Lions Experimental Podcast. Here with you again, this is Matt Gurney for Jen Gerson. This is an unusual episode, although we seem to say that almost every episode. We don't know what's going to happen with Russia. Jen and I had our conversation this week just a little bit after Vladimir Putin wrapped up his um, crazy speech in Moscow. And now, kind of like the rest of you, we're just waiting to see what happens. So we talk a lot about that. We talk about some of the other big stories in the news this week. Uh, a media company facing some ownership trouble, uh, the problem with the Green Party, Pierre Polyev connecting with Canadians, but mostly whether or not we're going to start seeing the nukes fly. So grab a drink, get comfy, and join us for the latest episode of the Lines Experimental Podcast. All right. Well, this will be a weird dispatch. Um, we are uh, recording this a couple hours after the, the Russians officially annexed uh, those parts of Ukraine. Uh, no one else recognizes this as being uh, valid. Um, and the Russians are saying they're going to defend their new holdings with uh, every weapon at their disposal. And there's been a lot of chatter uh, of NATO countries publicly telling them don't go nuclear. And you put all these things together, plus a bunch of other things, and it kind of makes me wonder if they're going to go nuclear. I don't know if they are or not. Um, but I'll, I'll say this. I think I think all of us need to be prepared, kind of like psychologically, for the fact that they might. And that's not a prediction or anything, because I don't know what's going to happen. But I think, um, like I'm always saying, our expectations are a problem. I think we need to have our expectations dialed in for the fact that things could be about to get really weird in Europe. So I would note this, and that is after listening to that speech, I mean, obviously reading a translation of that speech from Putin. On yeah, I, I didn't see it live. I, re I read a translation. Yeah, later. a translation of it. Um, those are not the words of a man whom I trust to have a a, a, a shared commitment to a shared reality like he is he is creating his own his own world a little bit and that means i don't think that we can trust that he would behave as we would behave in his situation i think he's operating on a different agenda and, and set of set of assumptions and and operations i am now personally i'm not an expert i'm in no position to 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 guess this but I am now resigned to the fact that it's a matter of when, not if. Um, but I'm much more pessimistic than you are on some of these things. Just, um, just the, it, it's the nature of a speech. It's the fact that neither you, the Ukrainians, the West, and Russia is going to back down. They're not. Yeah. No one's and no one's bluffing here. So I, I don't see how this ends in anything other than a tactical nuke strike. But I could, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, what, what I want to ask you, because this is like nuclear war is your wheelhouse. So what does a tactical nuclear strike look like? I know we've talked about this a bit before in the line, but just, just so that people don't think I'm getting apocalyptic here. A tactical um, nuclear strike is not you and me are going to be in our basements for 72 hours. That's not what that means. Well, first of all, it's not 72 hours. It's two weeks. Um, fair, fair. So, look, thanks a for lot letting of, me know that, or I would have made a very crucial error. A lot of the terminology um, is Cold War vintage stuff that most people don't think about anymore, and you can quibble with any of it. Like there, there's a lot of fuzzy terrain between 
a tactical nuclear weapon and a strategic nuclear weapon. And a lot of people would say a nuke is a nuke is a nuke. I don't agree with that. So a nuclear weapon on the high end can be something that can either completely destroy a city the size of Calgary or rip the heart out of a city the size of Toronto. Mm -hmm. We'd call that a strategic weapon. Uh, it is used for strategic purposes to materially weaken an enemy nation by destroying its population and its infrastructure and its economy. Sure. Um, tactical nuclear weapons are much, much smaller than that. And they can be very, very small, or they can go up to uh, around the size of the Hiroshima bomb. And these are designed to be used against enemy military forces. And sure. that could mean destroying a base. It could mean destroying a unit in the field. They can be used in air-to-air -air 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 battles, um, shooting down an enemy aircraft. They can be used against enemy warships. So they're still nuclear weapons, and they are vastly, orders of magnitude, more devastating than any other uh, conventional weapon. But, for instance, if you dropped a nuclear weapon, a uh, tactical nuclear weapon, on, for example, Pearson International Airport in Toronto, which is probably about 10 miles from me, I'd hear it. And I'd see the flash and it, mm -hmm. I would feel the shake and it might even rattle my windows, but I'd be fine. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the fallout would do to me, but like, you know, a tactical nuclear weapon will destroy everything within half a mile in kind of in a radius. So like a full mile. Now that, now that again, that is orders of magnitude more powerful than any other weapon that exists, but that's a little itty bitty nuclear bomb because some of the big ones can kill whole cities. And so, also, let's put this in perspective. We're not seriously contemplating the idea that Putin's going to throw even a tactical nuclear bomb in North America. We're talking about tactical nuclear bombs toward Ukrainian yeah. targets specifically. Well, I mean, let, let's talk about that. Um, I would say that there's four possible scenarios if he decides to use them at all. And he might not. But if he does... There's something called a demonstrative use, which is that the Russians use a nuclear weapon, but they could blow it up kind of anywhere. They could blow it up in the middle of a field. They could blow it up over the uh, Black Sea. They could hit some tiny little military garrison. And the purpose is not actually to materially alter the military outcome of the war. It's to send a political message. I'm not kidding. Mm -hmm. I have nuked you and I'm willing to do it again. So it's to send a political message. The other possibility is what we could think of more as a, a broader tactical use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine itself, which is to actually use them for a military purpose. So a small number of weapons um, hitting military bases, logistics hubs, um, rail junctures, key bridges, and units in the field. And, you know, those bombs will destroy anything they hit. So we could wake up one morning and find out that um, some of Ukraine's military units no longer exist. Some of its airfields no longer exist. And some of its logistics hubs no longer exist. Mm -hmm. But if you use those bombs smartly and correctly, you might not kill a lot of civilians. Like you could, like, again, with a tactical nuclear bomb, you can hit a military target inside a city while leaving most of the city itself intact. Mm -hmm fallout and radiation uh is difficult um it depends a lot on factors like how high the uh, the altitude that the bomb explodes the lower to the ground it is the more immediate fallout it creates uh because it irradiates more dust and soil and dirt and stuff all that stuff gets sucked up in the air by the fireball because it's hot and hot air rises and then it falls out fallout it just falls out of the sky a nuclear weapon detonated at high altitude doesn't do that it sets everything on fire below it but it won't generate a ton of fallout so i don't know what kind of radiation exposure we'd be looking at it could range from catastrophic to minimal 
Um, so that would be the broader, kind of the second of two of four scenarios. The where things start to get scary is when we start thinking of of Putin doing a mix of tactical and strategic. So again, totally speculative. He hits a series of military targets in Ukraine with tactical nuclear weapons, and he drops a big one on Kiev. And I, I don't think that's likely. Like, I, I think a lot would have to go wrong for us to get to the stage where he's destroying cities, but it's possible. And then that fourth level of escalation is is the bad one. Uh, it is when things go very badly wrong and we find ourselves in what the, um, the strategist called a general nuclear exchange, which is basically a nuclear world war. And I think that's very unlikely even now, yeah. Yeah. but possible. And that's something- Possible. And it, I would say about. like- if we were saying that this was a what had gone from a 0.01 to a 1% probability in February, we might be at a 2% probability of that now. It's still low, but the probabilities have now gone up. Of course, the other concern is even if we go into scenario two, as you described, which I think is probably the most likely scenario, which is like limited tactical nukes against military targets in Ukraine in order to, to, to bolster um, Russian forces. Uh, even if in that kind of scenario, how does NATO respond? Do we retaliate? Do we retaliate conventional? Do we retaliate with nuclear? I mean, like how we respond to all of this is, I mean, we broadly um, is, is a real open question. I don't I don't know. Well, so that's how we could get from scenario two to scenario four. That's right. Yeah. So um, basically, you and I are in a really bit of a, a bit of a pinch planning wise, because neither of us really wants to write this dispatch until we see how the next couple of hours go. <laughs> yeah, well, like dispatch blur uh, one, Kiev has been destroyed and a dozen nuclear warheads have gutted the Iranian military dispatch blurb two. let's talk tax policy like it's <laughs> like this is not an easy thing to plan the whole the whole last week or so, I think has been really interesting. Um, it's been a busy week, news-wise. Yeah. Must be said. Yeah, but I think even more than that. So look, my mantra around here, as you know, is our expectations are a problem. And what I think is happening for a lot of people right now is that a lot of people who had been adamant that nuclear weapons would not be used in this conflict are now starting to go, oh, maybe they will be. Mm-hmm. And their previous expectations were a problem. So they're kind of psychologically getting caught up in what that would mean. For those of us, you and I, many others who thought they might be used in this conflict, we're moving from might to very likely could be or even uh, probable. And we're also having that catching up process. And I have, um, I, it's funny, like I, I, I tell other people your expectations are a problem, but I would say this week, my expectations have been a problem. So hmm. You you are more pessimistic than I am on this one. I'm sort of in the the zone of like, I don't know what's going to happen, but here's here's what worries me. If I was to write out purely intellectually what I think is going to happen, I think I would be expecting nuclear use. Yeah. But what I keep having are my expectations, and they're hmm. telling me, "Nah, he won't do it." And I don't know if that's my um, saner judgment or if that's my normalcy bias. I think it's your normalcy bias. Could be. Look, the the type of language that Putin's using, he's calling the West satanic. I mean, uh, there was an expert basically saying that that speech was as close as you get as an open call to hostility with the West. Yeah. 
you know, and I mean, it's interesting because I literally am writing a book on the satanic panic and, and, and that looks at the history of Satanism and history of satanic conspiracies, particularly in the West. And it's very interesting because if you have accepted the idea that your enemy is satanic, is literally the most evil of evil, beholden to the evil one, there is no guardrail against your behavior anymore. There is no normalcy anymore. There is no, like, satanic is an interesting word. It, it literally means that we, the West, are beyond our control, be, operate in a, in a sphere beyond our own control. We're completely beholden to the most evil forces allowed. And if those are, that's who you genuinely see your enemy as, then what what is not permitted? What yeah, you don't show mercy are you holding to, to, right? Like, and this is something that we saw happen during the during the satanic panic. It's that when people sort of come to believe that their people they disagree with it, that their quote unquote enemies are are um beyond redemption through ordinary liberal means, you know, beyond talking to, um that's when things go pear-shaped. Right. Like that's when, cause, cause I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't pull people back from the line of that and say, okay, so we don't worship Satan though. Well, that's what a satanic person would say. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it's, um, I think he's gone and it's just a question now of whether or not other people are going to allow him to stay in power or whether or not he needs to use nukes to stay in power. I'm not enough of an expert in Russia to make that, that guess. But uh... um, you know what's interesting? So I, I had a I had a talk earlier in the week with a buddy of mine who mm-hmm. um, I think is currently going through a rapid reevaluation of his expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, he believes Putin is inherently a rational actor, and that he will make rational decisions. I don't know if he is. I suspect one's definition of reason tends to change if you feel a noose tightening around your throat. But I think for Putin, one of the concerns we have is rational actors can reach irrational decisions if their information is bad. Well, and not only that, but you can be the people who were engaged in the satanic panic were rational actors. They were acting upon the information and the understanding of the world that they had. Their understanding of the world was deeply limited and flawed. And, you know, sometimes in many cases, warped by a kind of religious bias which putin's understanding of the world seems to be warped here at least in his outward public facing statements so like it doesn't make someone irrational to say my enemies are satanic and i should therefore blow them up you know there's an old joke it doesn't really work anymore in the age of, of cell phones and text messaging and stuff but the joke is that a guy goes on vacation and he asks his, uh, his neighbor to look after his cat and while he's on vacation, he gets a telegram from his neighbor. It's an old joke, a telegram. And the telegram says, your cat escaped, ran into traffic, and was killed. So sorry. And the guy gets back from his vacation, and he chews out his neighbor. And he says, I'm not even angry at you that the cat got out, but what a terrible way for you to have dropped that on me. Why couldn't you build me up to it give me a chance to adjust send me a telegram that says i'm so sorry your cat's gone missing we're looking for him and then the next day send me a telegram that says your cat's on the roof we're going to try and get it down and then the next day send me a telegram that says i'm so sorry we couldn't save your cat like you should have like softened me up 
And the neighbor goes, you're absolutely right. I'm so sorry. I feel terrible about this. The next year, the guy goes on vacation again. And he gets a telegram from his neighbor. And it says, your mother's on the roof. <laughs> I, I've always liked that joke because people do need time to adjust to bad news. Mm. And there's a degree of psychological bargaining and and adjustment and i think a lot of us are reevaluating our expectations this week and i i think you, you've talked about the speech uh putin gave and i agree with you it's kind of unhinged but i actually don't think it's the most interesting thing that happened this week um everything has to be seen in its context over the last couple of days starting with the american uh, sorry the, the russian ambassador to america in washington he published an essay. It's kind of nuts. And you read it, and it's all blaming NATO, talking about how Russia would use nuclear weapons to defend itself, saying America doesn't take its nuclear bluster seriously and doesn't believe Russia means what it says. And other Russian diplomatic missions all over the world have said similar things. And I look at that, and I see a coordinated communication strategy. Mm-hmm. And then I look at the Nord Stream pipelines exploding in the Baltic. And look, I'm, I'm, I haven't been deep diving in the area. I haven't done a forensic analysis. But I ask myself who benefits from that. And no one really does. Mm. Except if the Russians are trying to build a case for a defensive war against which NATO. Is, which is obviously what they're doing with the um, annexation. The annexations, these statements from their diplomats, a pipeline exploding, which they blame on NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, repeatedly warning that we're not just at war with Ukraine, we're at war with NATO backing Ukraine. We now mm-hmm. have these annexations and saying we're not, we're defending ourselves. And you put all the, and, and then Putin's speech on Friday, and you put all these things together. And what you start coming out with is a messaging plan. Yeah. And I think the, and, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a messaging plan that's preemptively defending the use of tactical nuclear warheads. They pushed us into it. They, they made us, us do it. it. They circled us. They 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 continued um, coming after Russian territory. Um, the colonial West is our real enemy. America dropped nuclear bombs. How come they we can't drop a nuclear bomb? It's all there. It's right there. And this is yeah. why I'm like this is why I'm further along this line than you are, because I'm just like the way that they're setting this up is 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 very it's they're communicating in very clear terms to me what they intend to do they're communicating to me no they're communicating exactly the way like if you had told me putin is going to use nuclear weapons in ukraine imagine what the week leading up to that looks like Mm -hmm. what i would describe to you looks a lot like the week we just had Mm -hmm. increasing bluster threats that uh against the west warning that russia will defend itself positioning itself as a victim that has no choice everything and that's why even though i'm still stuck in this headspace where i'm like yeah maybe it's not going to happen maybe it's not going to happen i still think that might be my normalcy bias pulling me back rather than any actual rational assessment of of what's happening and i i don't really know quite what to make of that but here we are well, and also, I, I do think that I don't want people, especially listening to this podcast, to panic about this because, I mean, A, you and I have been wrong lots. And B, even if that happens, I don't think it's actually going to affect our lives that much, <laughs> to, be, to, be, to be blunt. 
I mean, maybe the, the, the actual dispatch we should be writing here is the degree to which Canada has demonstrated itself to be utterly insulated from, you know, almost a daily hit of news, international news. I mean, the pounds collapsed. Bank of England had to shore up. Looks like the debt crisis in China is worsening. You had the Nord Stream pipeline blow up. Oh, what the hell else happened? Like three other things happened. Hurricane Ian. Um, oh, I mean, Fiona hits at the Atlantic and then Fiona Ian hits, hits Florida. The, the British Ian economy hits, goes yep. bust. The pipelines explode. Yep. Uh, something we would normally be all over is infighting at the Toronto Star, which would normally Oh my be, God, right. Yes. Uh, the Greens cancel their leadership vote because they're too incompetent to pull it off. Yeah. Uh, a series of polls come out showing that Polyev's lead is widening. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, all, this has been a fascinating week in the news. But like I said, like, our second and third dispatch items are going to be really, really weird if the first dispatch item is at three in the morning, our time, Kiev went up yeah. on a mushroom cloud. Yeah. Right? I think so... um, the one of the things I, I, I will say is one of the, the feelings I've had this week, and it's purely a feeling is that I had a pretty, and you and I, you might remember this specific conversation. Early 2020, we were talking, um, is this Wuhan thing going to be a thing? <laughs> and I told you, I don't know, but I'm acting as if it will be. So I, uh, I'm making sure I can work fully from home. I had to go out and get a couple extra little widgets uh, te technologically. Um you know, am I, you know, I'm going to go shopping. I'm going to make sure we got lots of uh, food in the house. I'm going to go to the bank, get some cash out, all, all these basic things. And I didn't know if I, if I was overreacting, but it was better to be prepared. So of a couple of weeks later, all of a sudden everybody's buying toilet paper, right? And I had a Costco thing of toilet paper in my house already. I felt that way this week again, where I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm well, what was the headline on my column this week? Time to think the weird thoughts. Yeah, time I'm to thinking think the, the weird, weird thoughts. thoughts. Yeah, and I think you know, even if it's the second scenario I laid out, Putin lights off a bunch of uh, tactical nukes in Ukraine, which would be that, and that to be clear is what I think is the most probable outcome here. And it would be it would be one of the worst days in human history. Yeah, like the amount of devastation that would be unleashed would just be horrible even in a relatively limited one-sided military exchange um life will go on and that's kind of what i find to be the interesting thing and i'm not saying that in like a cheerful oh life will go on way i mean life will go on and we'll have to deal with it mm -hmm. like you know the kaboom bunch of mushroom clouds go up in in ukraine and i think people probably have kind of a cold war leftover mentality of oh it's a big flash and it's all over no, we're, we're no. still going to be here and we're going to have to figure out what we do that day. Yeah. You know, like if let's even go to scenario three, right? Let's say Putin lights up half a dozen uh, tactical nukes and he takes out Kiev or Lviv or Odessa. Mm -hmm. You still got to go to work the next day. Mm -hmm. Still got to go grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. like, and I, I think we're, we're going to have to start thinking about some of these scenarios. The, and the, the, the apocalypse is not the end. It's the revelation. I kind of want to flag that, uh, that, that column I wrote in 2020 yet again. Yeah. Well, or put it this way, the apocalypse will not be an event. It'll be a process. Yeah. And... Well, the, 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 the other interesting thing is, is I kind of have a similar feeling about climate change, which is, 
a much different kind of catastrophic catastrophic scenario because of course climate change isn't one event it's a process but even so i mean i don't think climate change gets us to the point of total collapse of all humanity the world is unlivable climate change is a slow process by which it just becomes less and less and less gradually less easy for us to live on the planet but we still go on that's the thing. There's no like moment where the gases get released and we all die on mass. There's no, there's no blissful end. There's no, there's no meteor coming. Like we just go on. It just gets harder. That's, that's what it is. So uh, yeah. I, I mean, expectations, right? Expectations. And a, and a fun thing to consider is that, well, not fun, actually horrifying. So a lot of people kind of our age and younger have probably never really thought about nuclear weapons at all i'm a weirdo who grew up fascinated by them and did my ma in them like so like i've i've studied this stuff a lot um but i've always studied from the perspective of the cold war and i think i think it's worth pointing out to people who, who don't necessarily know this stuff as well and i'm not trying to put a, a a big smiley face on thought of nuclear war but we actually have far fewer warheads than we used to so it would be a very different kind of war. Like if we'd actually had a full exchange in the 1980s, I don't think we would have rendered the human race extinct, but I think we could have collapsed civilization. Like mm-hmm. they completely collapsed civilization to basically back to the dark ages. I don't know if we could do that now. I, I like, I suspect we probably could, especially if, if uh, we caught a few bad breaks. But there's a lot fewer bombs, a lot fewer missiles. The The nuclear forces are much smaller. And I think that's kind of why I was saying a few minutes ago, it's not an event. It's a process. You know, a lot of us older than, say, 40 probably had nightmares of the sirens and the flash, and that's it. And that's not the way it would be. So, Well, the other question in all of this is, like, how much of an arsenal does, does Russia have left and how much of it is can it actually successfully shoot? I think that's a very open question, is my understanding. I don't know. I don't have the number offhand, but it has somewhere probably around 1,500. Um, 1,500. But like 1500 how many of those st- could they actually successfully shoot? We've seen the last year have not uh, given us, yeah. shouldn't give us any particular uh, rosy assumptions about Russian military competence or capacity, right? Yeah. No, and it's interesting because I don't, you've, have you seen Dr. Strangel? Mm-mm. No, it's 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 a it's a dark comedy about nuclear war planning, and there's this great scene where one of the American generals is saying, "I'm not saying we won't get our hair must, you know, we'll lose twenty, thirty million people tops." Like it's like this is very dark humor. We actually could have a full out exchange with the Russians and kind of be in a situation where a lot more of us are alive than we expected. Mm. Now what? Yeah. <laughs> like, like what, what do we do now? And the the thing I um. How much can I say here? Um, I have concerns about how... uh, We have some concerns. I have some preliminary concerns. I have some concerns. um, About how prepared Western governments are. And and I I think the Americans still have within their government um, Cold War muscle memory. And I think the Americans, more than any of us, have people in their national security blob who think the weird thoughts that I do. I don't think there's many Canadians in Ottawa who think the weird thoughts. And I know that there would be plans 
at national defense and at probably public safety for some weird scenarios. But I get the feeling that even the people who write up these scenarios in Ottawa are thinking, this will never happen. And then some bureaucrat skims through. It's like, oh, good. We've updated the nuclear war plan, you know, initials it and then boom, right on a shelf. You know, a, a, a pandemic was actually a really likely scenario by the standards of disaster planning. It was one of the ones we knew would absolutely happen eventually, and we weren't ready for it. So how are we going to do reacting to something that three years ago, well, I mean, a year ago, would have seemed completely absurd? Well, maybe it'll be fine, Matt. Oh. I don't want to linger too too long on this. Um, I do think that we should hold off on writing this top of the dispatch until tomorrow, until we absolutely can't do it anymore. Just because we, I, you know, and like I said, I don't, if, if it is the scenario two situation, I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, but it could happen like in the next week, but still, I kind of want to hold off on, on doing that. So let's, let's move on to like everything else in the news. I'm sorry. I'm staring, I'm staring into the abyss. Um... Oh, okay. That's cool. Uh, do you need another minute? Okay, I think we're good. Okay, now. We're good. We're good. Um, we're good. Okay, let's go. What else do you so, want? To, I mean, like, and in other news, um, and in like, other news, like, how do we I mean, pivot the, off of that? The, the ownership situation at Tour Stars is, is hilarious. It's, I, I, I mean, only, I've only looked a little bit at that. So that basically, there's two owners, and they're like they're they're not playing. There's nice. two owners, and they didn't have the foresight to like have a third tiebreak breaking vote, like. I'm just going to point this out. Like I made a bit of a snarky remark because I couldn't help myself. And that is, uh, you know, these two owners who have owned tour star for the last two and a half years are now in such a a dire state of um, uh, dislike and disrepair. Their relationship is so dysfunctional that one of them has filed a court order to basically force the sale of all of uh, Nordstar's assets, including the Toronto star. And in the meantime has said, you know, the other owner can't fire a bunch of editorial staff, including um, one of our former colleagues, Anne-Marie Owens. So that's interesting. What's more interesting to me is that two people who went in on a $60 million deal to buy all of these assets, firstly, didn't have a plan for what would happen if they disagreed about the vision of the company and how to, how to dis- dissolve that partnership in an amicable way, and had, didn't have the foresight to like appoint a third partner and maybe divide their company 47, 47, six, that someone else would have like a deciding vote. Like, I don't know, our Substack did like, just so that we're clear, our we, Substack, we, we, we literally were in. like, we cut in a mutual friend who could function as a tie-breaking vote if you and I ever had a complete deadlock on an issue. A complete deadlock on an issue or a, total, or a total breakdown or a total disagreement. And you and I have had like the shotgun plan. Like, how do we dissolve this company in, amicable, in an amicable fashion? Like, literally, we've put more thought into how we would, how we would dismantle the line. <laughs> oh, well, that's cheerful. I get put into like their 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 plans for the Toronto Star. So subscribe to us. Yes. <laughs> no. The Star. Um, I guess I should I should disclose here. I wrote for the Star a few weeks ago. I'm I'm not the, I'm not a full time writer there. I think, but they they asked me to write a piece of them, and I did. So just as as a disclosure, I've, I've, I've written for the Star recently as well. Yeah. Um, go you go where the where the fish are, right? So. Correct me if I'm wrong here, because again, I, I've seen the headlines, but I haven't read the coverage. 
Okay. Is this a scenario where um, one of them wants to build the business and the other one wants to just basically rape and pillage it for the that, That's cash? kind of what it sounds like. Um, okay. So there's a, how is it? Bit, Beethoven. I'm Paul Rivet. Um, so Beethoven Rivet. Beethoven Rivet are the two sort of like main uh, owners, 50 50 owners of Nordstar Capital, by the sounds of it. And Nordstar Capital is kind of like the holding company that owns Torstar and, and, and Vertical Scope, and I think an online gaming company kind of thing, right? Okay. So, fine, fair enough. So, it sounds according to Rivet's court filing that Pitov's kind of went lack of a term oh, what's what's a non-offensive word to term of saying this is like he he got really into his role as a publisher and started to take it very very seriously and okay. didn't want to rape and pillage the tour, tour star where rivet was like there's a business case like like yeah. you know so it sounds like there just was a, a difference fundamentally on on the vision for the company so to speak with bit of kind of standing up and saying no i, I don't want to do this um, Rivet, ironically, was the one who put in his injunction um, a, a thing saying, I don't want you to, Bithoff, to fire a bunch of editorial staff, including Ammo. So that's weird, right? Like, that's interesting. I don't know what to read into that. But, and it could be nothing. But uh, yeah, and essentially that's that's the situation. So now it looks like there's going to have to be some kind of uh, court-mediated hmm. uh, dissolution of Nordstar, which will include the sale of Torstar. What is Torstar worth at this point? I don't think oh, very much. Maybe I mean, now that I'm writing for them a lot. Um, yeah, no, but I mean, if it were in the 10 to 15 million range, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, see, but I don't correct me if it's... I'm wrong. It was a few, how long have the new owners had it? Two and a half years. They've, so... they've literally been in business together as long as we have now. Just I remember... Funny. I remember when the the company was uh, purchased, and if, by the way, this is not just the Toronto Star. This is Tor Star, which has some other papers. Which it has some other it. papers and other 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 entities. It's not just the paper. That's right. If I remember correctly, the company was purchased. Like its purchase price was below its cash reserve on hand. I don't know if it was cash reserve on hand, but it was like total assets, certainly. I don't, I, I think, look, I, I will it, it, You could have been right. It could have been cash on hand. And I think we'll have to check the display. Like, we'll check this. So l listeners and viewers indulge us as we fact check this. But I think it was cash reserves on hand. And the reason that sticks out for me is because I remember at the time talking with some other media types and going. That's insane. Well, no, in a weird way, it kind of makes sense. Hmm. that the, the value of a modern media legacy company, a legacy media company is negative dollars. So a modern legacy company with 60 million bucks in the bank was like purchased for 58 million bucks. Yep. Or like, I'm trying, I don't remember the exact number. So I'll go look that up. I don't know. The star has continued to invest. They have continued to spend money. They have continued to try to actually run a newspaper. They haven't contracted as much as some of the other papers in this country have getting smaller and, and leaner all the time. The star has tried to hold on, but that's interesting because now maybe the fact that they've been trying to hold on is the source of the dispute between the partners. I got to go read all this stuff. Like, sorry, I've been reading nothing but like except nukes all week. No, so no, no. This, go is, this. this is a, this is a, this is a, a real palate cleanser. Let me assure you. Corporate drama is much more entertaining and nobody has bombs. Listen yeah, I should not write this dispatch, uh, this uh, dispatch blurb though, because everything I write will just be in military metaphors. Like, <laughs> Bitov hit 
uh, rivet with a second strike. So my, my, my head's in a very uh, specific place right now. I will well, take care of this one. But like, like, I don't know what there is for us to say. I mean, we haven't done any original reporting on this one. Uh, I think a lot of it's been reported out in other outlets all, all, already. Like I said, the only thing that really struck me is like there was less planning into mm. the dissolution of this com- of, the, of this partnership than most typical marriages between wealthy people. like 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 most marriages will include a prenup like like what are you what are these men doing like it i'm just sort of baffled by that but i don't have any other really um cogent observations to make well i mean i've i i was raised by a business guy and one of my early life lessons is love is love and business is business so Mm. i could be opening a business with my wife and i would still have a catastrophe plan for the business right? in the case of a, a irreconcilable breakdown um yeah, exactly you you just have to plan for that possibility i just i'm i'm just kind of baffled by that i'm baffled that both of these men should actually be really embarrassed that this is now a court matter like this is yeah. that is that's embarrassing for them all right well I guess, yeah, I mean, okay, I will go read some of that stuff, and then you can probably write it up, and then I'll, I'll read it for fact-checking. The other thing that's happening this week um, that I thought was interesting was uh, the British economy going all wonky. Yeah. This is, I, I don't know enough about this, so I've been poking some of our um, other buddies and asking them if they want to write something about it. I don't know yet if, if any are going to take the bait, because mm-hmm. everybody's busy right now. But I just find it very interesting, right, because um with with everything else we have in the world right now having a a g7 economy melting down would not be great um it's perfect timing as far as i'm concerned let's just get everything off the table out of the way yeah Yeah, hit hit christmas with a with a uh, clear slate because everything that could go wrong i'm saying everything everything that could go wrong wrong by christmas pull off the bandage build back better 2023 with a bang um be great so I, I am poking around on that, seeing if anyone wants to uh, whip a little blurb up for us on that front. But I, I don't have any takers yet. So um, it's so ne- interesting that everything else has been so crazy that that almost didn't last the news cycle for more than a day. Oh, the Queen died like two weeks ago. And who the hell remembers that now? Like, I, nobody. I don't even remember. Like, um, yeah. And then the other, the other thing that just kind of jumped in, I mean, there are a couple of federal stories and i've already mentioned one of them the green party basically is so thoroughly melted down now they can't have a leadership race like they've actually had to if i recall correctly just based on a quick cbc article i read the green party is uh does not have the logistical ability in place to have a leadership vote um because they've had a series of staff uh departures so so that's great so let's stop pretending that they're a party and move on I, this is I mean, this is what I've been telling people for years. We pay the Greens too much attention. Every time they get any scrutiny, they wilt and implode. Like this yep. is this is a high school clique that happens to have a couple of seats in in Parliament. Like it's I I don't know why we. I mean, no, I do know why. Elizabeth May was great at self promotion, and yep. she uh, was great at self promotion in a way that made people pay attention to her party she, she was great at promoting her brand as being like somebody who you really want in politics without no she was great at promoting herself as uh, as a brand as someone whom journalists idealized as the perfect politician yeah without she would putting talk much about consider- or something yeah i mean without putting much consideration into the fact that she had no demonstrable skills as a politician aside from her ability to self-promote and, well, I mean, and win a seat, and then eventually and win, a, win seat. a second sure. seat, and then yeah. the party just immediately goes into free fall. I mean, sure. how seriously are we supposed to take a party that could not withstand the added pressure of one additional MP? 
like it worked the the greens lost me forever with the anime paul stuff and i'm not saying anime paul was perfect in her leadership either but like i was like okay you're just a pile of wingnuts moving on i think yeah no i mean i i do think you know it's funny some people i know because you know there are smart greens there are like smart people who are identify with the greens and they're smart and it's just the thing is about them i was saying them for years and some of them would even agree with me that elizabeth may filled that husk of a party with her own personality and sort of ambition and and Mm self-promotion but that's all it ever was and she was savvy enough to gussy it up a bit and make it look like oh it's it's a nascent demographic uh, democratic movement in a country that is drifting ever more towards a multi-parliamentary democracy it's like no it's not it's just not it's it it was the vessel for her ambition and her ego and her knack her genuine success as a self-promoter and i don't know I, I don't say that to be uh disparaging i mean nobody nobody can criticize anyone for their ego on this show not in our line of work no i mean we get up and tell thousands of people every day what we think yeah, um like we're important or something yeah, I think it's weird, but here we Oops. are. Um, the, the other thing federally, other than the Greens being a permanent tire fire, is, and who who cares this far out ahead of the next vote, but pa- Polyev is doing well. Uh, doesn't surprise me. His polls are rising. There was a poll a couple of days ago that I kind of looked at and went, well, that's weird. There's a Main Street poll that had the Conservatives way out in front. Too mm-hmm. high, as far as I could tell, it was an, like it was a wild outlier to all the other recent polls. Also, Main Street, so yeah. Um, but then I saw Angus Reid a couple of days later, not as high, but the Conservatives are still way ahead. In, so I mean, in, obviously, Polyev is, is is enjoying a bit of a honeymoon period. Or he, you know, maybe it's a honeymoon, or maybe now that the conservatives are done their stupid leadership factional stuff and the news is bad all the time, maybe Canadians are tuned out. They're they're looking for someone who comes off as serious, which is definitely what the current conservatives scream to me. Yeah, serious government. Serious government waiting. I think it was in June. It was before we took our summer break. you and I wrote about this. We just had the feeling that we had sort of seen peak liberal and they mm. were coming down. So, mm-hmm. all right. So what? I'll do a federal medley. I'll, I'll recap both these things. You go figure out what's up with the tour star. Tour star. I, I will continue to see if I can figure find someone who wants to whip up a little economics thing for us. Okay. And then we'll just do kind of like you start on, on nuclear situation and then you throw it back to me and we'll just kind of joint do that one. What I'm going to do on the nukes is nothing. Um, oh, okay. Overnight. I will, okay. I will start doing it um, tomorrow. And I just feel like I should repeat just as a note of caution. I don't want anyone to panic, but I want everyone to pay attention. Is, you know, is I, that... I, I don't I don't think that we've had a, a dispatch here that or a podcast here that will make anyone panic. It's hard. It's hard to talk, especially with people who have memories of the Cold War, where they're programmed to think that the button being pushed kills everybody everywhere. Mm-hmm. We live in an era of smaller, more precise nuclear systems. And I look, I hope it doesn't happen. And it's very possible, even if Putin orders the button to be pushed, some bodyguard steps forth and puts a bolt in the back of his head. Mm-hmm. Um, like I wrote my column a few days ago, we have to think about the weird scenarios, and one of them could be civil collapse in Russia or un- instability in Moscow. The problem is that some of those scenarios also lead to nuclear conflict. Yeah. Oops. 
life yeah, i liked life more i was joking about this on twitter a few days ago where i basically said two thousand years ago well 2019 i'd get up in the morning and i'd make my my cup of earl gray and i'd be reading the papers and i'd be like man what am i going to write about today well you know and andrew Shear he said something dumb or doug ford tough labor negotiations with the teachers <laughs> oh, yeah. i'll do my 800 words on that mm-hmm. and everybody online would be like gurney you suck you're you're a fucking asshole or you you're brilliant you're the best journalist in the country like the level of engagement was the same when the stories were like contract negotiations with <laughs> toronto's largest public uh, public workers union have dragged it through an overnight session and now it's like well hopefully we can finish the plague before the nukes start flying <laughs> and that's three and, years. And, and hope and, ho- and hopefully hopefully you know the uh the, the collapse of a g7 economy doesn't send like catastrophic economic ripples through an already damaged global situation to say nothing of what's happening in china great super like like we're hoping we're hoping that like plague nuclear war 2008 style collapse maybe this week right also can you feel bad for liz trust for a second like yes you killed I mean, the queen yes i can you've collapsed the economy you're going to oversee a pop prob- probable nuclear war it's your first month on the job go we should probably what would be funny to ask um ask our readers to email us stories of their worst their <laughs> their worst first day or week or month they ever month. had on the job first month on the job yeah let's you know what let's just for fun let's put that in the dispatch challenge okay. to readers email us your story that it shows us that you had a worse first day week or month on the job than the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Yeah. um <laughs> So we'll 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 have we'll we'll probably put that in next week's dispatch, assuming of course we're not all in you know in our basements. Sure. Cool. Yeah, we'll we'll yeah. we'll go with that. Do we need another another staring into the abyss before we go? Okay. Yeah, I think okay, we're good. We're good. Yeah. Okay. Um. Pack it up. Oh, you and I will talk about this off air. We need to figure out what we're going to do with the comment section. We took a two week break. Mm. Has it been two weeks already? Yeah. And oh. I. Well, let's let's bring it back. Let's see how it goes. But let's bring it back with a like, we're watching you and yeah. we're only going to open up comments on the dispatch for now. All right. That's a good idea. Okay. Yep. And then if they behave, we can sit, we can maybe open it up on more pieces. Like I don't mean to want want to be patronizing to our beloved paid subscribers who pay, who pay for the privilege of commenting under our pieces, but like my dudes, it was getting insane. It's getting insane. Like some of the stuff was legally actionable. And yes, just, we we can't. We're not we're not going to deal with that. Like, I will I, say though that even among our paying subscribers, something like ninety seven percent never comment. Yeah. So yeah. and probably of the remaining three percent, I'd say probably ninety percent of those comment reasonably and rationally it like it's comment any comment section is a demonstration of a collective action problem all you need is for everyone to play nicely together but if one person decides to be a jackass it doesn't matter what the others do because the whole thing falls apart well and i think also we should just be very relentless ruthless about banning people like if you if you were posting stuff that is legally actionable that is a perma ban off of that there's no three strikes here like we don't have time to keep track of people all right all right so assuming that things you know 
we yeah. will reopen um comments uh next week or on this dispatch uh let's do it on this dispatch all right let's see how it so goes. We'll, put, we'll put a little blurb in there we also just need one of the things we need to do is that we can't have people responding with like one word to every single existing <sighs> comment in the thread stop it's, it because someone will come in and there'll be like a comment thread that has like 80 comments in this and they will reply yeah good point or no i think you're wrong to every single one of them so an 80 comment thread becomes 160 comment no, thread guys, like that. no that is bad comment thread etiquette if we had better moderation tools yeah I know. if like all like basically like if we could get substack to give us either length limits on comments daily maximum numbers of comments or monetize comments where you can write as much as you want as often as you want but each one costs you a buck yep we and would, I wouldn't care. We would be, this problem would be solved. I know. I, when I was back at the post, that was one thing I proposed. I was like, charge people to, to leave a comment. It's an obvious thing to do. I'll say this. Our engagement numbers haven't suffered. No, I know. Like I was curious to see if killing the comments for two weeks would actually in any way harm us. I think we had like two people unsubscribe because they desperately missed the comments. Yep. 97% never comment in the first place. That's true. But at the same time, I like the comment section. And it when it was great, it was really good. It was I always checked the comments. I always found that it was um uh really valuable. Like when it was good, it was fantastic. So I don't want to get rid of it. I'm sort of pro-comment, which I never thought I would be. But oh, yeah, I am anti-comment, but I will I will play by your wishes. All right. I'm going to go stare into the abyss again. Cool. All right. Um, well, okay. So you do Torstar. I'll do Federal Update. Um, I don't really have anything to say about hurricanes. Like, they're bad. Hurricanes are bad. Yeah, hurricanes are bad. Um, I, I'm desperate to be one of the uh, journalists who one day covers hurricanes, like, in the rain jacket with, like, ah, the, 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 you can see the wind here in the back. Like, I just love weather. I just fucking love it. Um, so I would love, like, if there's a major hurricane, the line to fly me down to cover it because i would just die i would love it so much i am completely open to doing this but okay. we would have to talk to our insurance guy uh, i just and fine. i don't mean just in case you're killed but i mean i don't want our coverage policy voided because you do let me hey let's just that's just us being responsible owners of a business which apparently is too much to ask for some people in this country yeah. okay um <laughs> We say that in the least legally actionable way, by the way, to our star corporation. We love um, you. All right. So we will go do our, our research on that. Um, thanks. Goodbye, everybody. All right. Duck and cover. Well, a very cheerful listen that was not, but we do hope you found it enjoyable in its own way and informative. As always, for Jen Gerson, this is Matt Gurney of The Line. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.